As we come now before God's word, turn with me, please, to the book of Hebrews, if you'd like to read along with me. We'll be in Hebrews in chapter 6. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Almighty, you are the source of all that is good and true. And we're glad about that. Lord, would you press your truth upon our hearts? Cause us to see our own lack, our own emptiness, so that we would be filled with faith and hope in you. Would you guide us now by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Hebrews chapter 6. I want to read here uh, these last 10 verses of the chapter, so we'll start in verse 11 and read to the end. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. Now, this text may come as a surprise to some of us because today's Easter. I mean, this is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and there is nothing in this text about resurrection at all. So we might expect, if you're here around Christmas, that we would read a passage about the birth of Jesus into the world as a man. 
Or at least we would look at one of the passages where the prophets are foretelling this coming Messiah. And in a similar way, we often expect around Easter to read the conclusion of any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, so that we can see that Jesus has died but is now risen. Or at least we maybe might read Paul's famous resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, where he makes a strong case for the resurrection talking about the witnesses to the resurrection, where, where he talks about how Jesus is the victor over sin and death for all who are in him by faith. And there he talks about how a Christian's faith is worthless if Jesus has not been raised. Christians really stake everything on the resurrection of Christ. We're pushing chips all in on this one. And so it's good for us to set aside one Sunday a year as a holiday in which we remind ourselves what happened in the tomb. That we celebrate what happened there. That we're in awe of what happened there. That we're encouraged to hold on to Jesus because of what happened there. So we will get there. We will talk about the living Jesus. But in order to understand this, we need to take a step back. Because we know that the Bible is not only about resurrection. You know, resurrection is a, a part of the Bible, an important part, a big part, but a part of the larger story of what the Bible is telling us. The Bible is a true story about God. The Bible is about God's glory and how God is bringing justice and hope to a world who has turned away from him in rebellion. So this morning, here we are, just plopped into the middle of that story. I did not choose this text specially for today just because it's Easter. If you've been with us regularly, you know that we're reading through the book of Hebrews, and so we've just now, this is the next section that we're in. But this is connected to Easter. It is. Because all of the Bible is one coherent work. It all fits together as one story. So this chapter is part of a larger narrative. Now, within that narrative, this chapter is telling us the true tale of curtains. Specifically, the true tale of two curtains. Well, that sounds exciting. I've got those in my living room, right? We'll get there. To help us understand why these curtains matter and a little bit of what I even mean by this, let's take a peek at what is behind the curtain here. Look with me in verse 19. Let me read it. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's behind the curtain here is hope. That hope is described as an anchor 
of the soul. It's the cleat on the dock that we tie our boat to. This is the grip that will hold us fast when the waters rise and when the winds rage. We want this hope. We need this sort of hope to carry us through. That's the reason why people sing about this sort of thing. In fact, you just did that. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. The hope here that's behind this veil or the curtain is the anchor of the soul. Now, the question for us is, how do we get to that hope? Because we can't just pull back the curtain. This isn't my shower where I can zing it across. Nor is this a, you know, an episode of, of Let's Make a Deal where I call out number one, two, or three, and, and then I see if I, I got a, a donkey riding on a, a, a horse or, or something that I actually want. Uh, there are things that stand in our way of this hope that block us from getting behind the curtain. A lot stands in our way, but the author mentions one barrier in particular. It's at the beginning of the section I read. Let me read starting in verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be, here it is, sluggish. So that you may not be sluggish. Some translations translate this slothful. Now these sloths and slugs are not just slow creatures that have issue with salt. These sloths and slugs are the bouncers at the curtain of hope. Sloth, then, is more than just laziness. And sloth is different than just a lack of energy or a struggle to get out of bed, just as a person who's struggling with depression might experience. Sloth runs far deeper than this, and it is very dangerous. Uh, Dorothy Sayers, I hope you're familiar with her. She's a 20th century British novelist famous for writing mystery, detectives, Peter Whimsey, and other things. Think Agatha Christie, if you're familiar with her, sort of in that vein. Um, so she's famous for her detective novels. She also translated Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, and other things out of the original Italian. So she's just this brilliant mind. She was also a strong Christian who hung on to the truth of the Bible. In one essay, she says this about sloth. It, here she's talking about sloth, it is the accomplice of the other sins and their worst punishment. Sloth is the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive 
because there is nothing it would die for. We have known it far too well for too many years. Sloth here, I think she rightly describes as is the sin of nothingness. And it's the nothingness that makes it so suffocating. Sloth's poison is its emptiness. That's why Dorothy Sayers will call sloth the empty heart, the empty mind, and the empty soul. And she says often the other sins are just disguises that are trying to mask this, sorts of, uh, this sort of emptiness. So often when we indulge in things like lust, either in the body or in the mind, we're often just trying to fill our emptiness. Or when we enjoy gossip, or revel in the scandals of others and call it news. We're trying to fill our emptiness. Or when we go shopping, not because we need something, but just because we want to buy something or have something to do, we're trying to fill our emptiness. We often even prefer to nurse grudges because we would rather be filled with anger and, and bitterness than to be filled with the emptiness of sloth. Sloth is the black hole that threatens us all. All of us. This is not just for the ones who sit in front of their televisions all day. This can also be ones who work 80-hour work weeks, who are always running errands and are always busy. A slacker and a scurrier can both be slothful. A deadbeat and a doer can both be dull. A lazy bones can have lack, and a hustler can be just as hollow. Whether we are running or walking toward it, this path of sloth will take us nowhere. And it will block us from the hope that is behind the curtain. So what do we do? Bury our head in the sand? Try not to think about it, forget about it, maybe find a good hobby? The author of Hebrews here gives us a better way. Verse 12, let me carry on his sentence here. He says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The opposite of the way of sloth is the way of faith and patience. Specifically, faith based on the promises of God. So the writer here is go, it moves on to give us an example from the Old Testament in the faith and patience of Abraham. So he draws all the way back from the book of Genesis... Uh, when God promised Abraham that he would bless him and that he would multiply him. 
And, and if the, the word of God is not enough to guarantee the promise, it, it says here that God added a second seal on that promise. He swore an oath to Abraham about that promise. So we swear on something that's more profound than ourselves. You know, you have to put your hand on the Bible. I solemnly swear. Or, or what, uh, what's the one that kids do? Uh, cross my heart and hope to die stick a needle in my eye or however you end that, which sounds terrible. Or, or some people say, oh, I swear on my grandmother's grave. I don't know exactly what that means. Please don't do that. Your grandmother might be upset, especially if she's still living. Um, God here has nothing more profound to swear on than himself. So that's what he does. He swears on himself. There's now a double confirmation of his promise, his word, and then his oath upon that word. His promise, God's promise to Abraham then to bless and multiply him is sure and unchanging. It's a source of hope for Abraham. And the writer says here at the end of verse 12 that we also are inheritors of that same promise. We will be blessed and multiplied by God too. There's just one problem. The problem is that all of this, the blessing, the multiplying, all of this is out of our reach. These things remain with God. And God is on the other side of the curtain. The curtain here that the author is talking about is not just any curtain. It's not just a metaphor. He's referencing a very specific curtain. And, and this is different uh, than the ones that are hanging in, in your living room. This is the curtain that was blocking off the room that was called the Holy of Holies or the room that was called the Most Holy Place. This was the curtain that would separate God from the rest of the temple and the people. And the author talks more about this later in chapter 9. Uh, but for our purposes now, we can just know that this was a, a huge curtain. Uh, later writers say it was probably in excess of 60 foot high and 30 foot wide. And thick. This isn't that gauzy stuff that makes it the nice light in the morning. Uh, some Jewish writers later say that versions of this were thick as a, as a man's hand breadth as his palm. So the point of this curtain, to be big and thick, was not just to be pretty, although it was pretty. The point of the curtain was to provide separation. God is the one who set it up in the first place specifically for this purpose. He tells us this in Exodus chapter 26. Let me read just a few verses here about this curtain or this veil. Verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold filled with hooks on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy 
place. The curtain in front of the most holy place was to separate them from the presence of God and the presence of everything else. So even though God would speak to his people through the prophets, even though God would rescue his people through his miracles, even though God would guide his people by his law, still the presence of God was separated from his people. Only once a year could one man, the high priest, ever enter into the presence behind the curtain. And this was not to enjoy hope or to enjoy the presence of God. It was just to offer sacrifice for sin by the blood of an animal. This curtain then was a permanent reminder to the people that cried out to them, you are separated from God. Is it any wonder then why we live in the emptiness of our sloth? Because we are separated from God. Now, if the story that God has written ended here, if this was it, you run the credits, close the curtains, you sit there and you go, is, that, is this all? Is this all over? We would be left empty in our sloth state and cut off from God. But the story of the Bible is not over. Jesus steps onto the scene. And Jesus is the very opposite of emptiness. Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so as people meet Jesus, they see him walking around full of wisdom, full of truth, full of healing and mercy, full of power and justice. And the fullness of Jesus also would expose the empty, cavernous hearts of the people he made contact with. This caused the people who met Jesus either to be drawn to him in his fullness or to be repulsed by his fullness. This caused people to either love Jesus or hate Jesus for exposing them until, in the end, according to the plan and story of God, Jesus was murdered, crucified. And the death of Jesus was literally earth-shaking. The death of Jesus would change the fabric of the world and tear the fabric of the curtain. Perhaps you know what I mean. If you've heard this passage of scripture before, well, I'm glad, Matthew chapter 27. If you've not heard it before, well, I'm glad to get to share it with you. Either way, let's all listen. Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. This is now at the end of Jesus' life. 
Matthew 27, 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. You can feel the cosmic impact here. The response of some, especially the soldiers here, was awe, wonder. This is the Son of God. And that's a right response. The response of others would have been terror. Terror. And this is also a right response too because the curtain that separated us from God is now split torn in two, which means that we are exposed to the fullness of the hope of God, but also to the fullness of the holiness of God. And the fullness of God's holiness will crush us in our emptiness. You remember the, uh, the first Indiana Jones movie? It's been a couple years, but the Raiders of the Lost Ark? There's lots in that movie that's not according to the Bible, just a caveat. And it's a movie, you know, full of all the movie magic. This is before computer CGI fixed everything, so I don't know how they did all their special effects, wax or something. But in the end, you remember, if you haven't seen it, I'll fill you in. In the end, the bad guys make contact with the Ark of the Covenant, which here is symbolic of the very presence of God. And when they do, it melts them away, literally, that's the bad guys when they you do it, of course. So Indiana's going to be better, right? But even the good guys, even Indiana, who's tied up with the girl, uh, he's, he, they are not safe. He's calling out to her, shut your eyes. Don't look at it. It's as if we as sinners, when, when we are exposed to the raw holiness of God, we will not be able to stand it. And that's true. When Jesus breathed his last and died, the curtain of the temple was torn top to, bottom, top to bottom, and that curtain was not only destroyed. If that were the case, we would be destroyed too. The curtain was not just destroyed. The curtain was replaced. Remember I told you at the beginning, this is a story... The, the true tale of two curtains. The author of Hebrews talks a little more about this later in his 
writing Hebrews chapter 10. We're almost there. Hang with me. Listen closely here. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. He writes this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Did you catch it? Let me read that last line again. Through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. In other words, there was a first curtain, the curtain of the temple, which is now torn. But now there's a new curtain, which is the flesh of Jesus. Jesus himself is this curtain. The risen Jesus is this new curtain. And Jesus stands between us and God, not as a barrier, but as a bridge. In Jesus is the path to the fullness of God. He's the key to the promises of God. He's the access to the hope of God. And Jesus' new and living way is open. This is not just for one man one time a year to go in. This is for all who believe to come into the very presence of God 24-7, 365, night, day, weekends, holidays, all of it. It's open to be in the presence of God so that we would not be destroyed by God, but rather enjoy God. Now, as I wrap this up, I want us to notice one final thing in this true tale of two curtains. Because the curtain between us and God remains. There's a new curtain in Jesus, but a curtain remains. That means that the presence and hope of God did not just gush out of the Holy of Holies upon everyone. But rather, the presence of God still must be entered into by way of the new curtain. There is no other way into the hope and presence of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father but through me. Which leaves us then with a question. Do you know Jesus like this? Do you have faith in Jesus like this? If not, come to Jesus. Let Jesus put to death the emptiness of your sloth and sin by the blood of his cross and instead fill you with his hope and holiness. If you do know Jesus like this, if you do have faith in Jesus, be glad. Because what the author says here in Hebrews is true of you 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you for your life, for your death, and for your life again. Help us to place our faith in you, to deepen our faith in you, that we might have hope. Thank you for being our God, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.